So today's reading is taken from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I wonder whether you know the game where you have to identify the lyrics of songs that are not just nonsense, but just completely false. Uh, I don't know if there's any U2 fans in the room. Uh, but at the beginning of the song Vertigo, <coughs> no, Dan's giving me a. Oh, no. oh you're, you, you know. Oh, great. Yeah. At the beginning of the so, uh, song Vertigo, Bono sings uh, Uno, Dos, Tres, Catorce, which uh, translated is 1, 2, 3, 14. <laughs> Total nonsense, false. Or any Fleetwood Max fans, the song's dream. Thunder only happens when it's raining. Is that true? I don't think it's true, is it? Well, here's another one. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. <laughs> now, you may or may not know, but Ruth and I are foster carers. And uh, rather foolishly, including our own boys, we've probably looked after about 14 newborn babies. And that doesn't make us baby experts. And if you're about to have a baby, we're not looking after yours. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that babies cry. All babies cry. Some cry a little bit, some cry a lot, but all babies cry. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't think that's true. But I think those lyrics reflect what lots of people think about when they think of Jesus. They see Jesus as this grown-up version of a baby who doesn't cry. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now, many of us have read a great book called Gentle and Lowly, and Jesus certainly was gentle and lowly, but that's not the same as saying that Jesus was a doormat to be walked over, that he wouldn't say boo to a goose. And I think if that's the picture of Jesus that you have, if you only think of him as that adult version of a baby that doesn't cry, then I don't think you know the true Jesus. And today's passage is going to be quite a shock. And before we turn to the passage, I just want to acknowledge a little controversy around it. Um, and that is whether this event that we've read about, Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, is the same event in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, that we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, in those Gospels, it's the same incident, but it happens towards the end of Jesus' ministry. But here, we're reading it right near the beginning. If you were here last week, we read and heard about Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, and now here we are, Jesus overturning tables. Now, different scholars seem to come down on different sides of the argument. Were there two different incidents? Is this the same thing, but just in different parts of the Gospels? But what they all agree on is that for John, the important thing is the meaning. 
Why did Jesus do this? And for John, why has he put it immediately after the turning water into wine? See, they, John wants to show us that it's the same glory that Jesus wants to show us here. It's the same mission. It's the same Jesus, but expressed in very different ways, turning water into wine and overturning tables in the temple. Sometimes, as we heard last week, Jesus makes wine flow and brings a feast, and other times, he seems to make a mess. Sometimes he's filling tables, sometimes he's overturning them. Sometimes he's comforting, sometimes it feels disturbing. But all to the same ends, to work in our lives and to show his glory. So we're going to get stuck into this event, and we're going to look at, at it under four headings. There's lots of C's, even more than four C's. There's the context, there's crisis, chaos, and confusion, there's the claim, and there's a conclusion. So the context. Well, verse 13, if you can look down at it with me, tells us that it's nearly time for Passover. Passover was and still is a Jewish feast that the Jews celebrated the time when God sent the angel of death as one of the ten plagues of Israel, of Egypt, sorry, to try and make Pharaoh let God's people go from slavery to freedom in the promised land. And the angel of death passed over the houses of God's people that had the blood of the lamb daubed over them. And John is very keen to make some contrasts between the religious festivals, the Jewish festivals, and the claims of Jesus. There were three times in his gospel that he talks about Passover. And every time that John talks about festivals, he then also looks at the claims of Jesus, how Jesus is the fulfillment of what these festivals were about. So Jesus heads to Jerusalem to take part in the Passover. And if we were following Jesus, if you were literally had been there following Jesus around, then you would have gone into lots of very ordinary situations. You'd have met lots of very ordinary people. And because Jesus was an observant Jew, you would have attended lots and lots of Jewish festivals. When God's people gathered, Jesus would be there. And so we find ourselves in the court of the Gentiles in the temple with people selling things that you need for sacrifice. There's cows, there's sheep, there's doves, there's money changers. And if you had been there, you might think, that's pretty handy. I've come all the way from Haifa. There's no way I could have carried my sheep under my arm. Isn't it great that the temple authorities have allowed all this stuff to go on? It's very convenient for me. I can now carry out my sacrificial duty. But, point two, there's this crisis, there's chaos, there's confusion. In the wedding, in the first half of this chapter, the crisis was there for everybody to see, wasn't it? There's no wine left. Crisis. Maybe it was like that in your house last night. Ours was there was no milk left this morning. But last week, there's no wine. There's a crisis. And Jesus responds to this crisis that everybody can see. But here, there doesn't appear to be a crisis at all until Jesus recognizes one and sees one. There doesn't appear to be any confusion or chaos until Jesus does something that brings that chaos and confusion. It's like he can see something, he can recognize something that nobody else can see. And in verse 15, he responds by making a whip out of cords, he overturns the tables, he drives all the animals out of the temple. Now, many, many years ago, for reasons that are probably too complicated to explain, I had to 
play the part of Jesus in reenacting this scene. Uh, and despite my inner thespian skills, I did it terribly. I was absolutely awful looking back. Um, and I think the main reason I was awful was that I misunderstood why Jesus did what he did. I didn't get into character properly. I didn't really get what Jesus was challenging, I don't think. You see, I thought that the problem that Jesus had was the kind of corrupt, exploitative uh, takeover of the temple, that people uh, were being exploited, that money was being made off the back of poor people who had come to the temple to worship. It sort of reminded me of the times when I've been to places like Burma or Sri Lanka, and you kind of see whole industries that have grown up outside of temples serving the worshippers that are coming. But I don't think that's what was Jesus' problem. I don't think he has so much of a problem of how the trade was being done, but the very fact that trade was there in the first place. I think Jesus' problem was the noise, the hubbub, rather than how the trade was being conducted. I think I was thinking, when I was reenacting Jesus, that he was some sort of communist, anti-capitalist crusader, or that he was a socialist, anti-injustice mode. But actually, this tells us that he was in zealous mode in this passage. It's the desecration of the precincts of the temple of God, a place that should have been dedicated to the seeking of God, to his glorification, that seems to be what's so disturbing to Jesus. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? How dare you? Instead of a kind of prayerfulness and a seriousness, there's just this bellowing of cattle, there's a noise of a market. And the market had filled the court of the temple the Gentiles would come to. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to go and pray, this is where you would come. If you were a Gentile and you recognized the God of the Jews as the one true God, it was here that you would come to worship. But it was full of a market. So instead of creating this atmosphere of worship, instead of creating a place where people could come to have a living relationship with God, that relationship had been replaced with a transaction. It become just a religious transaction, not a relationship. That's the crisis. The prophet Isaiah, if he'd seen it, might have said, their lips and mouths are near, but their hearts are far. And Jesus can see that. So the temple authorities may have been performing a very helpful service to the Jews, especially those that have come a long way to Jerusalem. But they've made a mockery of the temple. The focus of people entering the temple should have been simply on God's glory. That's what the temple represented. But instead, it had just been turned into this market with money changers and animals. And so Jesus responds in the way he does. He makes his cords, his whip, and he drives everybody out of the temple. And that couldn't be further from away in a manger. Jesus, meek and mild. The way that Jesus responds, the way that he reacts to the fact that his father's house isn't being used for the sort of worship it was intended for, has to get rid of any idea that we have that Jesus is just mild or lukewarm. To the point that we read, don't we, in this chapter, that the disciples were reminded of Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal of your house consumes me. Now at this point, I had a choice. The zeal of your house consumes me. If you go and read Psalm 69, it is an incredible psalm where this verse is 
uh, knows where to take them from. It's about a suffering Christ and the glory that will follow. And I would really encourage you to go and do so uh, over lunch later today. But what I want us to do is think about the word zeal, because I think it's such an important word in this passage. Now, when we hear the word zeal, we often think about it in a very negative way. It's normally connected to the phrase overzealous. So in the World Cup recently, there was a headline which said, overzealous Qatari officials have been accused of censorship again. Or uh, an article about the zero COVID policy that China was following until recently described the policing of controls as overzealous. So we see zeal as a pretty negative thing. But the Bible doesn't. We should be so grateful that we have a zealous God. Now, I'm no Hebrew or Greek expert, so I hope this is right. I'm looking at my Hebrew and Greek expert over there. But apparently there's no distinction in Hebrew or Greek between the words zealous and jealous. And Israel used the phrase zeal of God to define God's intense love for them, his protective loyalty, his everlasting commitment to them, and to his divine purposes for them. It's an incredible phrase. To know that we have a zealous God is something that should fill us with awe. In Exodus 34, we're told that God's name is Jealous. And that means if God is jealous, he wants our exclusive worship. You can't worship God and something else. In the Old Testament, we know, don't we, from the first commandment, that we shouldn't worship any other God or any graven images. And in Exodus 34, the Israelites are told, don't make a covenant with the people in the land to which you're going. Don't worship other gods. You must not be unfaithful. And we can see in the Old Testament what happens when God's people are unfaithful. So uh, King Solomon, one example, he had lots of foreign wives so that he could build alliances and maintain peace. It was, he'd replaced the relationship with God with something that was transactional. And ultimately, this led to him building a temple for another God and turning his back on the true temple and the true God. Or in Hosea, we had a little bit about Hosea when we were thinking about the passage last week. The whole book is about Israel's adultery and their lack of zeal for God, but God's faithfulness to them. And so when in this passage we read that the the disciples are reminded of these words in in Psalm 69 about zeal, when they see what Jesus is doing, that's the passage, that's the verses that come to their mind. We need to understand that something that's going on here that means that spiritual adultery is taking place. And it's this that provokes the zeal of Jesus. For Jesus, when he sees the market in the, temples, in the temple courtyard, the honour and glory of God are at stake. And I think it's still the case today, isn't it? Jesus' zeal for his temple and for our relationship with him hasn't diminished over time. So let me ask you this question. Where is the temple today? Where is God's temple today? Well, there are many layers of answer to that. But one answer is, every Christian individually is God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. But not only is every Christian individually God's temple, but we as the church are God's temple. Ephesians 2 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and with God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So if you're a Christian here this morning, then you're God's temple with Jesus as the cornerstone, and Jesus' zeal burns as brightly for you as it does in this passage. And as God's temple, we cannot allow anything to come into our lives that is inconsistent with the worship of him. And that includes anything that replaces a relationship with a transaction, even good things like coming to church. If coming to church has just become simply a means to an end, I'm going to scratch your back, God, if you scratch mine. Or if coming to church has become a performance that other people can see, rather than an act of worship and adoration, then that's a problem. We mustn't allow our relationship with God just to become a transactional one, whether that's us as individuals or us as a church. So God loves his people with a burning zeal of grace and with covenantal love. And that's why Israel and the church are called the Bride of Christ. We heard some of that last week. And why God calls Israel's turning to other gods adultery. And so I think it begs the question, as I was reading this passage, the question that came to my mind was, are there any things in my life that I need to drive out of the temple? My temple, my heart. Now, it's a rhetorical question, because I know for anything like me, then there's loads of things, right? There are loads of things that distract me from worshipping God. There are loads of things that I put before God and that I turn my gaze to more readily than God. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this meme of the boy, let's see, here we are, this boy holding hands with his girlfriend, but he's always turning over his shoulder looking at another girl who's walking past. Uh, And on each person, there's always a statement. And on the girlfriend that he's holding hands with, there's always something really important of substance. But on the girl that's walking past, there's always something very frivolous and unimportant, but that we all recognize as being attractive. And it's called the distracted boyfriend meme. Uh, And I think when it comes to God, that describes us pretty well. Describes my heart pretty well. All of us are distracted boyfriends. All of us find it easier to turn our gaze to other things than we do to God. Despite God being the only way to live life to the full, the only way to be confident in who we are, the only reason to understand why we were made, to be sure of our future, to be content in this life, We consistently look over our shoulders for satisfaction somewhere else. But God is a zealous God and wants our undivided attention. And if that requires overturning the table of our lives, driving things out of our lives, and that's what God will do because he knows that's what we need to have a meaningful living relationship with him. So all of us are like this distracted boyfriend. We've all got unfaithful hearts. And the job of cleansing our temples is just an everlasting one. It's an unending one. So if the prerequisite, though, for God to love me is for me to have clean hearts, to have a clean temple, to match his zeal for me, then we're in trouble, aren't we? Because we can't do that. But fortunately, our third point, the claim that Jesus makes, has an answer for that. We're going to see that our relationship with God doesn't depend on our ability to sort our own temples out, to cleanse ourselves, to turn over the tables of our lives, 
we're going to see that our relationship with God isn't reliant upon our faithfulness or our zeal. So look with me, please, at verses 18 to 21. And it's a pretty uh, funny conversation going on here. The temple authorities are furious at what Jesus has done and demand to know what right he has to do it. Show us a miracle. Show us some sign to prove that you have the authority to do what you've just done. And Jesus gives them a pretty enigmatic answer. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jewish people completely miss the point. And they say something like, I don't think so. It's taken us generations to build up the wealth and stability to even think about rebuilding the temple. It's taken us 46 years to rebuild it, and you think you're going to knock it down and rebuild it in three days. But fortunately, in verse 21, John tells us what Jesus meant. He was talking about the temple of his body. And in this statement that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, there's more depth more richness, more reasons to be in awe than we possibly have time to cover. So here are just a few little morsels to chew over. Jesus is saying, you are acting as if you own the temple, but I am the temple. You're pretending to be worried about the temple and how it's being used, but you're focusing on the physical building still as a representation of the glory of God. But I am that reality. Jesus is the temple. John made that clear right from the outset of his book. If you think back to when we were looking at John 1, and just, just as the tabernacle, the tent of worship in the Old Testament was the, the meeting place between uh, a holy God and a sinful people, just as the temple was the dwelling place of Israel's divine king and the glory of God, John tells us that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt is the same as tabernacle. Jesus came to tabernacle among us. Jesus is saying here, when he says, I, I'm going to rebuild this temple in three days, he's saying that if you want to know where the glory of God is displayed, then you need to look beyond the physical boundaries of this temple that we're in and look at me, the new temple. But Jesus isn't only the temple or the tabernacle, he's also the sacrifice. John's saying it's Passover, the time when Jews came to the temple to sacrifice the lamb, to have their sins atoned for, to remember God's mercy for them. And Jesus' death and his resurrection are the reality to which the whole of Passover points. In the Old Testament, under the terms of the Old Covenant, the temple was this meeting place between God and his holiness and people and their sinfulness. But on the cross, Jesus himself becomes that meeting place between a holy God and a sinful people. He's the temple and he's the sacrificial lamb. It's in Jesus' death and in his resurrection three days later that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God. And it's at the cross that we can see the zeal for God for us best displayed. It's at the cross that we can see the price being paid for our adultery, our inability to keep our temples clean. It isn't our zeal for God that's the basis of our relationship with him. It's his zeal for us. That's why John says, Behold the Lamb who takes away, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's so much more about these, this verse. 
Jesus claiming to be the temple. So from Hebrews 10, for example, we can see that Jesus is the great high priest over the house of God. So that means we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And Jesus' body is the curtain that was ripped in two so that we can go into the holy presence of God with confidence, Hebrews 10 tells us. So Jesus is the temple, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the curtain. And to conclude, as we come towards the end, his zeal for his people, his zeal for his father's house that we read about in this passage in John 2, is the same zeal that he showed for his people on his cross. And it's the same zeal that he's showing for us now, advocating for us on our behalf to the Father. It's a zeal which couldn't be further from the idea of Jesus, meek and mild. And as we conclude, we have to think about what does that mean? How can we respond? Well, Christians here this morning, Jesus cleansed the temple because people were missing what the temple represented. They'd replaced a relationship with a religious transaction and were missing the glory of God. And that might sound familiar to you this morning. Maybe you're running so fast and hard, even for good reasons, that a relationship with God is being squeezed out. And it's urgent. A relationship with God, a Holy Spirit-driven love and zeal for him, is urgent. And so maybe there are things in our lives that we need to drive out. Maybe we need to clear out the things that are causing our heads to turn, like the distracted boyfriend. Maybe that we have to overturn the tables of comfort, of busy calendars, of what people think about us of family, of money. Maybe they're all causing our heads to turn. In the book of Hosea, there are lots of reasons given for Israel's infidelity and unfaithfulness. But there's one main reason, which is their lack of knowledge of God. And again, God forgive my Hebrew here, (coughs) but the word knowledge in that passage is yada. Now, I don't know whether it's yada, 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 it could be any of those. But what's important is what it means. The word yada for knowledge is the difference between knowing someone, knowing about them, and really knowing them, knowing them intimately, personally. It's the difference between how you know your boss and how you know your wife. God wants us to know him with a yada knowledge. He wants us to have such a depth of love for him and to know the depth of his love for us to such an extent that our hearts and minds are changed. The only way that we're ever going to have the power to remain faithful to God, to turn our backs on the things that turn our head like the boyfriend in the meme, is to know God with that yada knowledge. And the way we do that is to have our hearts daily warmed by his word, to know his full and utter commitment to us. A commitment so extreme, as we've just read about, that his son would come and tabernacle among us and die for us. And as we finish, I want to say a few words to you if you're not a Christian here today. I really hope this episode in the life of Jesus has made you think, is that how I thought he would act in a situation like this? Do you see gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Or are you really surprised to hear about him turning over temples and making whips and driving people out of temples? Imagine being there, being an eyewitness to this. It can only be right, can't it, if this person does have a higher authority than the temple authorities. Either he's mad, or he is, as he claims he is, 
the temple. And either his claim of being the temple and it being rebuilt again in three days is ridiculous, or if it turned out to be true, then it's worth investigating. And Christians, we believe this is exactly what did happen on the cross, and it's what enables us to have a living relationship with God. The cross is the ultimate expression of the zeal of God, his intense love, his protective dedication, his everlasting loyalty towards the church. I mean, what more supreme layers there for God to show his love for us than to send his own people, his own son, to die? I just want to read a few verses again from Psalm 69, the passage that the disciples were reminded of. It says this in Psalm 69. Uh, that the David, it's written by King David, and he uses the phrase, I, but it's also talking about Jesus, and it says this, For he endured cross for your, scorn for your sake, and the shame covered his face. He was a foreigner to his own family, a stranger to his own mother's children. The zeal for your house consumed him, and the insults of those who insulted him, insulted us, fall on him. There's no better way for God to show his love for us than by sending his son to tabernacle among us and to die for us. His temple was destroyed so that we could become a holy temple. 